This episode of Betrayed contains descriptions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing. I kept saying, well, why do you have to kill me? Why is it so important that you need to kill me? In 1975, Elaine Anton survived a brutal attack by a serial killer. He um, pulled a knife out and he said, that's the last ride you're ever going to take. And he said, okay, now I have to kill you. And I said, no, really. I said, you don't have to kill me. I said, I'm not going to the cops. Elaine's story is one of the most incredible and unsettling that you'll ever hear. I've been raped before, but I've never been threatened with, with death. Her story is told in Mad Blood Stirring, The Inner Lives of Violent Men, from author Damon Fairless. Damon is a print and radio journalist with a master's degree in neuroscience. I wanted to know what it was like inside the mind of a serial killer. Mad Blood Stirring is the culmination of years Damon spent poring over research and trying to figure out what drives male violence. Where does it come from? You know, what I really got interested in was the subjective experience of the men in those states. In a chapter called The Black Box, Damon dives deep into the world of psychopaths and the science that explains their behaviors. There are human beings who don't have the capacity for compassion. Once you don't have compassion, you can do terrible things. Elaine's attacker has been locked away for more than 40 years because of what he did to her and three other women. On this episode of Betrayed, you'll hear from both Elaine and the man who nearly killed her. I knew there was a rage in me that, that scared the hell out of me, and I didn't want nothing to do with it. Uh, uh, anybody under the right stress uh, is perfectly capable of doing the same thing I did. Uh, you know, we're, we're the biggest predators on the face of the earth. So to say it's not part of me, no, you're lying to yourself. Damon Fairless used to love to fight. If I saw someone, a guy, uh, being an asshole, being aggressive, being a bully, I felt a switch go off and I would confront that guy. Damon calls it Lone Ranger Syndrome. These confrontations could be shouting matches. You know, getting in a guy's face. Or full-on brawls. Knocking a guy clean out. Um... And it felt right, it felt good, it felt justified, and it felt like the only solution. Over the years, Damon got into a lot of these kinds of situations, close to a dozen or so. And I mean, this is like a, you know, incredibly small fraction of my life, like 0.000000 whatever 1% of my adult life. But it was a really intense bit of my life. And, and it was also the kind of thing that I was doing into my mid and late 30s that uh, was going to eventually get me arrested or killed or kill someone else or hurt someone else. Now, even though a lot of the situations he got into did indeed involve defending someone in a Lone Ranger kind of way, Damon also admits that he craved the violence of these situations. A switch or a hormone cascade or something, something really in my marrow made me act that way. And he wanted to figure out what was driving that. What was it about that switch that seemed to propel him towards a violent confrontation? Could he turn it off? How? And if he could turn it off, then why couldn't some other men? 
So aided by his master's degree in neuroscience and a desire to understand his own behavior, Damon set out to understand as much as he could about male violence. I guess I was really interested in trying to figure out to what extent is that inherent? Damon's research brought him to the Waypoint Mental Health Centre, a psychiatric hospital in Penetanguishene, Ontario. It's in cottage country, a couple of hours' drive north of Toronto. The Waypoint campus consists of a series of buildings. One of them, Oak Ridge, is a maximum security building dating from the 1930s. It was originally called the Criminally Insane Building. The man who attacked Elaine and brutally murdered three other women has lived at Oak Ridge for close to 40 years. Rather than naming this man, Damon simply calls him the killer. Why are we calling him the killer? Why, why do we not want to identify him? Well, there's kind of two reasons. Uh, the first is a lot of times psychopaths are quite narcissistic, extremely narcissistic, and want press. And he, he wanted press. And his victims' families are still out there. And I was like, do I really need to name him? So I, I, I just decided to keep it out um, because I think it was the right thing to do. The conversations that you'll hear were recorded several years ago, back when Damon was doing the original research for his book. Damon first heard of Elaine through the head of spiritual advising at Oak Ridge. He mentioned to Damon that a woman who had been attacked by the killer had recently visited the facility. And came in to forgive the killer. And I was like, what? And so he explained that, yeah, she came back, you know, this happened in the 70s, and she came back a couple years before I was there. So, you know, within the last decade, and that she came to forgive him. And so he put me in touch with her. I think talking about it was therapeutic for her. She was going through this process of dealing with the past trauma, and part of the PTSD treatment is being able to tell a coherent story of the trauma. And so she was at that stage, and she was willing to talk. You'll also hear from the killer. I guess what I'm asking is, tell me about what's in that Pandora's box. I mean, it sounds like you opened it and some pretty serious, powerful stuff came out. Anger scared me because I, I knew that if I ever let go, I could be dangerous. Don't, don't open that box. You know, eventually that Pandora box, you keep shoving into it and only hold so much. For Damon, his conversations with the killer were part of his quest to learn as much as he could about the state of mind of serial killers in those extreme moments of violence. You know, what I really got interested in was the subjective experience of the men in those states. I was really interested in my subjective experience, that sense of that switch going off. When my switch went off or goes off, when I'm enraged at someone willing to punch them or whatever, my empathy gets super dampened. I'm not worried about how they are. Now, as soon as I finish those fights, it comes back on. I have this regret, and I'm like, oh, I'm such a terrible guy. Why would I do that? Oh, my God, they've got a family. or They were kids once. My empathy comes flooding back. But these guys just don't have that. What these guys, these serial killers, do have is psychopathy. As Damon describes it, a psychopath is someone who has a specific emotional and behavioral profile. Someone who can appear charming and affable, but who is in fact entirely self-centered, highly manipulative, emotionally shallow, and unempathetic. 
He, at one point in his incarceration, uh, referred to his victims as spilt milk. Can you walk me through what is at play in his brain as far as dismissing people as spilt milk? Every year, he goes before a review panel trying to seek access to a lower secure facility. Just like an inmate will go before a parole board and, and ask for release into a lower secure facility or out into society, he seeks that. So every year he goes before the panel and one year, uh, one of the panel members said something like, how do you feel about your victims? And he said, well, they're like spilt milk, meaning that's happened. I'm not going to cry over spilt milk. Now, it's clearly indicative of the inability to empathize with his victims because you don't call someone who you killed and sexually attacked spilled milk without being able to detach yourself in a fairly monstrous way. But it's also indicative that he couldn't get into the minds of the review people in front of him. His tactical thinking doesn't include the ability to put yourself in the mind of someone who's looking for a reason to uh, believe that you have the ability to empathize with people. Right, so he can't even really fake it. To determine if someone is a psychopath, psychiatrists administer a test called the psychopathy checklist. It's considered the gold standard for helping identify the most dangerous criminals in society. There are 20 traits on the checklist, like the ones I mentioned earlier, being self-centered, highly manipulative, emotionally shallow and unempathetic, plus a bunch of other ones like denial and lack of remorse. Each one of those traits is assigned a value. To be considered a psychopath, an individual's score has to be between 30 and 40. The killer says he scores 26 on the checklist, when in reality, hospital staff say he scored over 30. Pathological lying is another trait on the checklist. The killer doesn't like being labeled a psychopath. When you get to those uh, checklists, those psychopathy checklists and stuff, uh, I don't think they're worth the paper that they're written on. What is that? Because they're using uh, statistics. Statistics says a whole bunch of people did this, so now you have to do it because everybody else did it. So you don't really get to know me. You're, you put a label on me and you haven't even got to know me. The killer prefers his own self-diagnosis. I see myself as schizophrenic with very strong psychopathic tendencies. I see myself as very sensitive. Schizophrenic as a sensitive person uh, runs on feelings, that's my interpretation, and a psychopath runs on logic. He wanted to mask himself as someone who had a mental illness like schizophrenia. He wants the world at large to see him more like a schizophrenic who becomes dissociative and is therefore not culpable for their crimes. He's selling a story. A diagnosis of schizophrenia could be the killer's ticket to freedom. Someone who is um, psychotic because they have schizophrenia, they lose touch with reality. They don't know what they're doing is right or wrong. So there's that famous case of a guy, uh, he was a passenger on a bus and he decapitated another passenger. It was horrific, but he wasn't aware that he was doing that. He was in a psychotic, hallucinogenic, mentally ill state. When he was medicated, he realized, oh my God, I've done this thing. And if you're not morally culpable, then you can be put in a lower security facility, you can get medication, and you can eventually become free. 
That individual was found not criminally responsible due to his mental illness. He was treated and granted a full discharge. The killer was also found not guilty by reason of insanity. But back in the 1970s, the thinking around psychopathy was much different. It was seen as a mental illness. That's why he lives in a psychiatric facility. Today, psychopaths aren't viewed as being mentally ill. There are no medications to bring them back to a so-called normal state of mind. If he were to be convicted today, he'd most certainly be sent to a maximum security penitentiary. A psychopath knows the difference between right and wrong. They just don't care. They, and they can change their behavior. They can moderate their behavior depending on what the consequences are for them. If they don't want to get caught, they can change their behavior and do it on the sly. The first murder took place in March 1974. The killer, who was white, was in his mid-twenties, married with two small kids. A young woman was walking home along some railroad tracks after picking up a takeout pizza. The killer was also out walking along these tracks. The way he would sell the killings was that he was essentially this good-natured, caring guy who was looking for love and who snapped and did terrible things in a fit of panic. But his actions, in fact, revealed the mindset of a predator. He told Damon that when he spotted the woman on the tracks, he started following her and then fantasizing about having sex with her. He caught up to her and grabbed her from behind. The killer claims he was in a delusional state. I put my hand on her shoulder, turned around and recognized who she was. She was someone he'd seen around town on occasion. She recognized him, too. Just starts to scream. The killer pulled out his knife. And he killed her. He tells me that the cops said that it was a killing done by someone who was in a panicked state, meaning it was incredibly brutal and savage as opposed to a kind of uh, cold and clinical slaughter, so to speak. And he, he kind of hangs on that description because he thinks it proves that he was so freaked out he didn't know what he was doing because if he knew what he was doing and had planned it it would have been a cold surgical killing as opposed to the savage brutal one and you can murder somebody in a very panicked state and still be entirely with it well yeah I, the thing that i was told by one of the people who works with him a lot is that what he fails to recognize or doesn't want to recognize about himself is the fact that he has been diagnosed as a an extreme sadist right this is someone who's got this profound rage that comes out and that after he kills someone in this state he shakes and it's a kind of adrenaline ride for him and he refuses to acknowledge that there's some sort of thrill-seeking going on there, right? He sees that state as a kind of delusional state, whereas I think the clinicians see it more of him having this sadistic, predatory kind of bloodlust state and then compartmentalizing that state because he doesn't want to either recognize it himself or he doesn't want the world at large to see him that way. The second woman he murdered was a married friend of his, someone he sometimes looked to for support during the breakup of his marriage. And it said that at any time I need somebody to talk to, that 
feel free to drop by. She's the only person that ever did that. This was in early October of 1975, about a year and a half after his first murder. I was going through a real turmoil with my wife at that time. In fact, I was on my way into London that day to have separation papers drawn up. The killer stopped by the woman's farmhouse in the middle of the afternoon, where he says they talked for about 20 minutes. He kind of, you know, cried on her shoulder, so to speak, uh, about his divorce, and then he was leaving, and then suddenly he came back. And he says again that he was feeling feelings of warmth and attraction towards her. My needs, my personal needs, uh, overruled uh, and uh, turned around and grabbed her. Uh, and took her back into the kitchen uh, and savagely attacked her. Uh, all of a sudden, reality came back to a certain degree, and uh, I realized that how can she be loving me if she's crying? She's, uh, the, the two ain't going together. This ain't supposed to be happening. It's supposed to be a good time, and it's not. She's all emotional. Her crying brought me back to reality to a certain degree. And when I came back to reality, also of what I've just done comes to reality. Now panic sets in again. Fear, people are going to find out that you did something you shouldn't have been doing, and uh, solely try to protect myself. So I'm going to kill her. I mean, this guy knew the difference right in that statement, thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I, I don't want to be caught doing this. He knew the difference between right and wrong. That's quite different than a schizophrenic. You know, the people, the clinicians at Waypoint have made it really clear he doesn't have any of the clinical presentations of schizophrenia, although he will, he will try to sell you that bill pretty, pretty heavily. As I've mentioned, there's a survivor of the killer's awful attacks, an Indigenous woman named Elaine Anton, whom Damon met through staff at the Oak Ridge facility, where the killer is kept. This is, without a doubt, the strongest person in my book. You've got all these guys in my book doing shitty things to people, hurting people, uh, including myself, getting in street fights for essentially self-indulgent reasons. And then you've got this countercurrent of this woman who has been this model of resilience and intelligence and generosity in terms of sharing her story with me. Something that's important to point out before we get too far into Elaine's story. Elaine talks about what happened to her in a matter-of-fact way that is disturbing not only because of what she experienced, but also because of the frankness in how she tells her story. Elaine's story of how she survived her attack is very much rooted in her prior experiences of violence. Some of those details are hard to hear. But not including them would be a disservice to Elaine, who has survived violence at levels that are hard to comprehend. They're part of the truth of her life. And understanding her past is crucial to understanding her ability to survive her encounter with the killer. Can you talk to me about her background? Because it's one of extreme violence in various stages of her life and ultimately how that helped her. 
her learning how to survive her childhood trauma helped her basically outwit the killer. And, you know, you don't want to talk about a trauma as giving you some sort of superpower because it's just awful what she lived through, but it's true. At a young age, her uncles raped her repeatedly. Well, when I was five years old, three of my uncles put me in a sleeping bag and raped me. Jesus. And that was when I was five years old, and I remember that distinctly. I have that distinct memory. Uh, that must, uh, I, I can't even imagine uh, what that was like. And then uh, one of the uncles that raped me when I was five, well, when I was seven, he started raping me. And he, that continued for um, about seven years. And this happened exceedingly regularly, like, you know, several times a month uh, from like seven till, you know, just the cusp of puberty. She got pregnant. And when Children's Aid discovered that she was pregnant, uh, they took her son and put her in uh, a home for abused kids. Elaine was just 12 years old at this time. And then you went to... uh, Grandview. Grandview. Right. Yes. The Grandview Training School for Girls was a provincial institution that operated from 1932 to 1976. Its supposed purpose was the so-called reform of troubled girls, girls who were between the ages of 10 and 18 who were deemed unmanageable. Some of the girls at Grandview were placed there because they had been found guilty of minor crimes, like shoplifting or truancy. Others were there because of so-called sexual immorality. By today's standards, they were essentially warehousing girls who were obvious victims of sexual assaults and abuse. Many of the girls sent there were indigenous, like Elaine. Their assaults continued when they got to Grandview. And were, and were you ever uh, one of the girls there that was... Yes. Okay. Yes, I had to testify in court against Robert Finley. In 1992, 16 years after it was shuttered, police began investigating claims of severe sexual and physical abuse of girls who'd lived at Grandview, resulting in charges against former staff and millions of dollars in compensation for more than 300 victims. I, 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 I can't believe how, how shittily people have treated you through your life. I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I feel like someone needs to apologize to you. Yeah, the Children's Aid Society. The headmaster there would kind of had some sort of roster where he would call girls down to his office and rape them. And she was one of those girls. So she, she told me that she found this way of kind of looking at herself from above while she was being sexually assaulted which I think is a fairly common uh, thing that happens when you're, uh, you know, a repeat victim of sexual assault. You go to a place. So essentially, she had that experience going to this place in her mind. So, you know, if you fast forward several years into Halloween in 1974 or 5. It was about maybe 9 o'clock at night. Elaine was 20 years old and seven months pregnant with her second child. She was alone, hitchhiking on the outskirts of London, Ontario. Research shows that psychopaths choose victims, especially for their vulnerability. It was about maybe 9 o'clock at night, and I just was walking down the street because I decided I wasn't going to leave town. 
about maybe five minutes after I quit hitchhiking, a car pulled in the lane lane where I was walking in front of me. And this guy gets out and he says, I saw you were hitchhiking a few minutes ago. Do you still want to ride? And I said, no, it's okay. I don't really, you know, I changed my mind. He said, well, come on, get in. He said, I'll take you for a coffee and I'll take you where you want it to go. And I said, no. The killer had spent years working on farms. He was a stocky powerhouse. It had been about two weeks since his last murder, his married friend whom he murdered at her farmhouse. And he pushed me in the front door and closed the door. And as he went around to his side, I tried to get out and I couldn't get out because there was no doorknob. Oh my God. And so that was the beginning. He turned down the side road near a church, an old church. He turned down a, a country road. And then he um, turned down a side road line with pine trees. As he drove, the killer made small talk, acting as though it was no big deal to force a woman into his van and drive off with her. Elaine's mind was racing, looking for a way out. Up to that point, up to the point where he pulled down the country road, I thought, well, maybe he, this guy will just take me for a coffee. Maybe I'll get the coffee, I'll get out and just start walking. Were you scared? Yes, I was. but. Um, I had been raped before, so I wasn't, I knew that, you know, when you get raped, you just, you get raped and then you have to get over it and you have to carry on. And so I figured that's all that was going to happen that night was this guy was going to rape me and then drive me back into the city and, and drop me off and that was going to be it. And then what happened? And then he um, pulled a knife out and he said, that's the last ride you're ever going to take. It's like a butcher knife. And he held it up to you? He held it to my throat, yes. And he said, what do you want to say before I kill you? He said, because I'm going to rape you and then I'm going to kill you. I said, no. I said, why would you have to kill me if you're just going to rape me? I said, nobody's ever going to go to jail for raping me. I said, I've been raped before. And I said, and there's no way that I would go to the cops because they wouldn't believe me anyways. The killer forced Elaine onto the floor of the van. And she said during that, she remembers kind of just looking up and seeing these big trees and she was going to that place in her head where she could kind of get you know gain her wits right i don't remember what his reactions were while he was raping me because i was just trying to make it through that space is like a safe room in her mind is the way i I see it and when she was being raped by the killer she i think was already in that safe room trying to figure out how to get out of that situation I was just concentrating on the pine trees, basically. I was looking up at the trees. I wasn't looking at him. And then that took, I don't know, about maybe half an hour to an hour. It felt like longer than that, though. And she had the wherewithal because she had been through so much trauma and could kind of, it's almost like, I pictured almost like a boxer who has a, who's been in the ring so often that the punches still hurt, but they don't freak them out. He pulled the knife back off, off the dashboard where he left it. And he said, okay, now I have to kill you. And I said, no, really. I said, you don't have to kill me. And you have enough sense, if you're not freaking out, to think about what your move is. I said, I'm not going to the cops. I said, and he said, well, what do you want to say before I kill you? And her next move was to ask him. Well, can I have a cigarette? Kind of like a last a dying person's request. And he relented and gave her a cigarette. And then she just kept lighting smokes off that burning cigarette. And I took time, and I sat there in the front seat, and I wasn't sure what to say to him. And then kind of essentially did classic de-escalation, where she asked him questions. I kept saying, well, why do you have to kill me? Why is it so important that you need to kill me? And all his response was about six or seven times. He said, 
if I don't kill you tonight, you're going to the cops. He said, and I am going to spend the rest of my life in jail. And I kept trying to assure him, number one, that I wouldn't go to the cops, and number two, that even if I did go to the cops, they would never put him in jail for the rest of his life. You basically talked him down uh, the way that, you know, these, these cops who are hired to talk to guys who take hostages. You, you spent you spent quite a while kind of trying to talk him down, right? Yeah, about four hours, three or four hours before he put the knife on the dashboard again. Uh, how did you do that? It's a pretty remarkable Well, we thing. talked about everything. I tried getting him to talk about his family. I said, do you have a family? I asked him if he had kids. He said he had kids. I asked him what he did for a living. And I just asked him where he was going that night and why he felt that he had to pick somebody up and, and, and kill them. Mostly it was me asking him questions. She said what she needed to do to survive, which is acquiescing, uh, making him feel like he's not a monster, uh, talking about shared interests. This went on for hours, with Elaine doing the bulk of the talking, completely unsure of what kind of an effect it was having on the killer. I wasn't sure if he was really listening to me or if he had the ability to listen to me. It's like as if I wasn't talking to anybody, like as if, like as if he was like underwater or I was underwater trying to talk to somebody. At one point he nicked my face so there was blood on the side of my neck. Just before he started talking to me, that he cut me and I thought, oh my God, now he's going to kill me. And he said, oh my gosh. And then he started talking to me. And then he kind of switched into this nicer version of himself. Then things got a little bit easier to talk to him about. And then he, did he start opening up? or? Yes, he started talking about his family. And, and what did he tell you? He said he had a wife and two kids, and that he fought a lot with his wife, and that that night they were fighting, and that, that he went out, and that's why he was out driving around, because he had a big fight with his wife. And then finally after he realized, he said, you're really not going to go to the cops. And I said, no, I promise you, I'm not going to go to the cops. So her ability to sustain extraordinary trauma and and kind of keep her wits in that situation helped her survive. Before letting Elaine go, the killer had one more demand. He asked for her phone number. He wanted an assurance of sorts that she really wasn't going to go to the cops. Elaine had a choice. She could write a fake number in the tiny address book he handed her, or she could provide him with her real number the number at the house she shared with her mother, her father, a sister and a brother, and also her young son, who was about seven. I could have written any number down, but I thought, oh, I better just write the right number down. And after I wrote the phone number down, he put the knife down on the dashboard, and he looked at the phone number, and he said, okay, we're going to go to a rest stop on the 401, he said, and I'm going to call this number. He said, and if nobody there knows you, he said, I am going to kill you. The killer drove to a payphone at the rest stop. He got out of the van and, knife in hand, walked around to Elaine's side. She got out and walked with him to the payphone. He, he was holding the knife to my back at that point. I actually dialed the number, and then he um, got on the phone and asked if Elaine was there. Elaine's mother answered. She said no, that she wasn't, that she'd be in in a little bit, and she didn't know where I was. The killer hung up and said, you're, you know, you're lucky you didn't give me a false number because I would have killed you here. So then we went back to the car, and he said, okay, I'll drop you off now that I know where I can talk to you. He just wanted to keep checking to make sure I never called the cops. 
when that's when he brought me back into the city. And she kind of lied about where she lived. She said she lived in this house, but she lived a block or two down. And I didn't want him to know where my mom lived, so I got him to pull into the railway tracks back there. And Once again, the killer got out of the van and walked around to let Elaine out. I walked for the first block or so until I was out of sight, and then I started running after that. And I just ran and ran to, until I got to my mom's backyard. And how, how far was that? It was probably about three blocks, maybe three or four blocks. But I just jumped over fences and just cut through people's backyards. You got home, and I'm assuming you didn't tell anyone. No, I didn't tell my mom, no. I was just freaked out. I just went in my bedroom, and I just laid down, and I just laid there until the sun came up. She got up and called in sick to work and then went to a hotel bar. I went out around lunchtime, and I kept thinking that I saw his car. And I said, no, he doesn't know where I live. Why would I see his car? And sat down and ordered a drink and heard a guy sidle up next to her and say, I didn't get a chance to buy a drink last night. And it was the killer. I just literally almost shit my pants. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. After Elaine took off running from the killer hours earlier, he went to a payphone and called her house again. Elaine's mother answered. And he said, oh, Elaine gave me her address, but I forgot what it was, or I wrote it down or whatever. He told her that he didn't know what the address was, but I had given it to him. So she gave him the address. So I don't know if he spent the entire night out in front of my mom's house or not. And he just said that he was glad that I never phoned the cops. And he said, okay, I'm going to buy you a drink now that I promised you a drink last night, and I didn't get you one, I'm going to get you one now. She said she drank the beer because she just didn't know what else to do. And then I told him I had to go. So I went to another hotel. And just drank herself into oblivion until she blacked out. This was the beginning of a terrifying three-month period for Elaine, where the killer stalked her and demanded sex. If she refused, he threatened to kill her and her entire family. If I did go to the cops, he was going to come in my mom's house and kill everybody in the house. I was scared that he was actually going to get mad and come in and kill people. Those instincts that Elaine drew on that helped her survive that first encounter with the killer, they were formed over decades of abuse and neglect. The fundamentals of what we all should be able to rely on to be safe, family, institutions, the law, all of them had deeply betrayed Elaine. Her survival to this point was based pretty much exclusively on her own wits. And with this new threat to her safety, and to the safety of her family, too. Elaine had no reason to think this time would be different. When she was pleading with the killer to let her live, insisting that no one would believe her, that the police wouldn't care if she was raped or not, she wasn't just saying that to stay alive. She was actually speaking an ugly truth. Not believing women is the norm, not the exception, especially for Indigenous women like Elaine. This was simply the world she lived in. Elaine did what she needed to do to survive. Every time I came out of my mom's house, he was there, or he would phone there. He said, okay, I'm going to come pick you up now. My God. Like, he would literally just, what, be waiting outside your mom's house? Or? Yeah, yeah. Then he'd just say, get in the car, and you'd go, or? Yes, of course, I had no choice. No, he had no choice. Were you worried that every time you got in his car, he was going to kill you, or...? I wasn't sure, really. I, you know how you can read some people? Well, I really couldn't read him. 
I wasn't sure whether he was going to kill me or whether would just have sex and whether that would be the time that he was going to pull his knife back out and say, okay, this is it, I'm going to kill you this time, or... Did you ever think about, like, trying to kill him, or...? No. Of all the abuse I suffered, I made sure that my kids never suffered any abuse. I would never inflict harm on another person like that. But e- even someone who's threatening your life? Well, I, I never thought of killing him, no. In his mind, that seems to have been some sort of relationship. I mean... Yeah, that's what he thought. So, so um, why do you think that is? Why do you think he had that impression that you were his girlfriend or something? No, I don't know what he thought, because as many times as he did phone my mom's place and as many times as he did knock on the door but I'd say 70% of the time I didn't go with him or I didn't answer the phone or people would tell him she's not here she's not here so it wasn't like every single time he phoned and every single time he came around I went out with him I did not no I just made sure that I went out with him enough times say one out of maybe five times that I did actually that I was out on the porch or that I couldn't get out of not talking to him or he was getting upset or something and so then that's when I would go just to appease him I guess that's the word I'm looking at yeah yeah absolutely to keep him uh, from getting violent yep totally he felt at that point that they were boyfriend and girlfriend I mean he eventually felt about Elaine that they were a couple he has these super contrived fairy tale notions of what a relationship is Damon, in your conversations with the killer, how does he explain these assaults? I think the world to him is like a dollhouse, and people are like little dollies. And he confabulates these childish, shallow plays with people. So his view of Elaine, so this is a woman he picked up hitchhiking, raped, threatened to kill, stalked for weeks and months, Uh, forced to have uh, sex with him over and over again. And in his mind, that constituted a relationship. I mean, that's that's how poor his understanding of basic human empathy and relationships is. So Elaine did a lot of what sexual assault victims do in general, which is to acquiesce by acting. You know, I've talked to, in this book, another serial rapist who told me that the women that he raped after he raped, and I think they were afraid that he was going to kill them, would be like, you know, you're not that bad of a guy. I could see under different circumstances how we'd be together. And he had the insight, though, to realize, you know, I realized that they were just saying that because they wanted to survive. Well, that's what Elaine was doing. But the killer doesn't have the basic understanding that that's what she's doing. So he, because his fantasy is such that he is the charming you know, mistreated, lovable guy, he's taking that information, that data, and plugging it in in a way to kind of help build that story of him being a fundamentally good guy with a few flaws. It's easier and more polite to say you're someone's boyfriend than that you're their psychopathic stalker rapist, right? Each encounter I had was almost like the rape itself. He was high, strung, and it was like going through that same thing over and over again. Over the course of the next three months, the killer raped Elaine at least a dozen times. Then, in mid-January... I gave birth to my son, and I told my mom, I said, I can't stay around here now that I've had the baby. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm leaving, and hopefully he'll stop bothering us. And, and was your mom aware of this? She knew that there was some strange guy that was coming around. See, I was going out with another guy named Buster... And she knew that Buster should have been the only guy coming around, but she knew that there was another guy that was kind of out there picking me up. And she never really cared, I guess. She didn't ask many questions. 
Elaine left her newborn with her mother and father and went to Hamilton, about a 100 kilometers away, with Buster, the baby's father, and Elaine and Buster got married. While she was away, the killer showed up a couple of times, asking where she was, and her mother told him she'd gotten married and didn't live in London anymore. Eventually, he stopped coming around. Well, I was there till the summertime. Then I came back to London because I'd broken up with my husband, and I got an apartment. Shortly after returning to London, in the summer of 1976, Elaine was at home, alone. There was a knock at the door. It was the Ontario Provincial Police. They wanted to question her about a recent arrest they had made. They'd found her old phone number in their suspect's address book, and they wanted to know if she knew him. They described him and his vehicle, and immediately Elaine knew who they had in custody. And I said, it's the guy that raped me and almost killed me one night, and that's when the cops almost, you kind of knocked them over with a feather at that point, and then they said, well, they needed to come in and talk to me. When they knocked on her door, the police had no idea that they would find someone who had survived an attack by the suspect they had in custody. And as for Elaine, she was about to learn about the killer's grim past. Several weeks earlier, the killer had committed his third murder. He picked up a teenage girl who was hitchhiking outside the local police station. She was hitchhiking and I stopped and picked her up. She should have been in school. She was playing hooky from school. She was heading up to the uh, family's beach cottage and uh, we were chatting along quite quite nicely and uh, freely and everything and feeling a lot of warmth from her and uh, then start fantasizing about her. Go down the side road, field, and You didn't understand that these, he had killed these other women? No, I didn't know he had killed women before that, no. And so how did that make you feel? The police were telling me that he was going to be in jail for the rest of his life. I couldn't trust the cops to be good on their word. I was still scared of him because I was still remembering that he said that he was going to kill everybody in my apartment if, if I went to the police. So I'm, I'm not sure whether he's going to get off these charges or get out of jail or what. So I was still pretty scared. Despite those fears, Elaine agreed to testify against the killer. Remember, psychopathy was viewed as a mental illness at that time, and despite Elaine's testimony, the killer was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was sent to Oak Ridge. Police and Crown attorneys assured Elaine he would remain there for the rest of his life. Elaine was skeptical. In the years that followed, Elaine sought therapy for help with post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety. She also struggled with addiction to crystal meth. She went on to have three more children, a daughter whom she had a few years after the trial, and then, when she was in her 30s, two more girls. When those girls reached their late teens, Elaine embarked on studies at the University of Western Ontario, where she would eventually earn a degree in sociology. At this point in her life, 
more than 30 years had passed since those awful assaults. In a way, she told Damon, it had all started to seem unreal to her. The passage of time, combined with her initial disembodied reactions to the attacks, the haze of drug use. She felt simultaneously removed from the experience, yet paralyzed by pain. In 2006, Elaine was stunned to learn that the killer had been granted a transfer out of Oak Ridge. So I read about him in the paper. They actually approved his release to a less secure facility. The killer had applied for a transfer to a mental health facility in downtown Toronto, where patients had access to the surrounding neighborhood. When the Provincial Review Board recommended his release to the lower security facility, the killer's doctors were shocked. They refused to comply with the transfer. Lawyers for the killer fought for his release, and Elaine was left feeling unnerved. The memory was overpowering. I was scared that he was going to come and find me or my family if he got out. For Elaine, in addition to the direct threat she felt, this was one more example of a system betraying her trust. She continued with her studies, but the situation set her back emotionally. She was fed up with the long shadow the killer cast over her life. Even after a judge backed the doctors at Oak Ridge and the killer was ordered to remain there, Elaine felt she needed to take back control to find a way to free herself from the trauma that gripped her. She found an ally in one of her instructors, a woman named Kim Luton, who taught a course on serial killers. Elaine shared her story with Kim and described how it had continued to take a toll on her. I kept thinking, well, there's got to be a way to deal with him and not let him have so much power over my life. And so then I said, well, if I meet with him and if somebody down there can assure me that he's not going to get out, then, then I'm going to feel a lot better about things. Kim Luton arranged for them to have a face-to-face meeting with a killer. Kim would be by Elaine's side throughout that meeting. The killer was excited about the visit. He had told staff and other patients that his girlfriend was coming to see him. He asked for permission to take Elaine to the staff cafeteria for a lunch date. That was swiftly denied. The night before the meeting, Elaine went swimming to help ease the stress. She said it helped her organize her thoughts around what she wanted to say to the killer. The next morning, Kim and Elaine drove to Oak Ridge. The meeting was held in Oak Ridge's Spiritual Care Center. Glenn Robitaille, the head of spiritual care at Oak Ridge, also took part. Were you scared to see him? Did it bring any kind of flashbacks back or anything? No, it didn't because he was nothing. I didn't even know that was him. The man that sat there in front of me was just an obese old man. I I didn't go in there with harsh words, and I didn't feel anger towards him. I said, okay, I said, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what my life was like before I met you. I'm going to tell you about what happened when I met you, and then I'm going to tell you about how my life was after. So I actually got to talk for about 30 minutes, just basically summing up my life and that it wasn't a happy place to be. I just gave him the generalities of, of what my life was like, that it was, that it was kind of shitty all along but that I managed to cope with things. 
And then I, I said, I've never held this against you. I've never hated you. I said, I forgave you a long, long time ago. I said, and that's what I'm here to tell you, that I've forgiven you, but that the best thing that you can do, I said, these women, you can't unkill them and you can't unrate me. I said, but the best thing you can do for these women and for me is to be, continue to be a model prisoner and not cause any harm or problems in the prison. Glenn Robitaille, the spiritual advisor, also wanted to put to rest the killer's notion that Elaine was his girlfriend. I've been saying that for the last 38 years that I was his girlfriend. He said, now she's here right now, we can deal with this issue. I said, the first night you met me and you raped me and you were going to kill me, I said, how does that make me your girlfriend in any sense of the word? That's what I asked him and he didn't have an answer. I said, it doesn't make me your girlfriend at any time during your lifetime. And how did he respond to that? Uh, he didn't say too much. He, I think he was more or less interested in getting his story out there and talking about stuff that he's been doing in the institution for the last 38 years. Yep. Basically, the conversation was kind of winding down after that because he was just kind of going on and on about himself. For the most part, Elaine was okay with how things had gone. She'd said what she needed to say and felt relieved that it was over. She wanted to cleanse herself of this trauma, and she, she took ownership of it from, from being something that was done to her to something that she had the power to move past. Elaine and Kim got into their van and headed back to London. Elaine fell into a deep sleep as Kim drove. And then when I woke up, I said, oh, Kim, I said, I feel so good. I said, I feel like I'm two feet taller now, like a, like a big load had been taken off my shoulders. As Damon spent time interviewing the killer, he began to think of the killer's mind as an impenetrable black box. I think that the hard and frustrating and mysterious aspect of trying to profile him is essentially, I had to come to the conclusion that I essentially could not understand his deep motivations because I don't think he did. You see psychopaths as monsters, it makes a lot of sense. They do monstrous things. But they're part of Homo sapiens. They're part of our species. And we like to think, well, the, they're different than us because they don't empathize, and that lack of empathy can lead to them doing horrible, violent things. Totally true. But it's, that's a real precious way of thinking about ourselves because the fact of the matter is if you look at genocide or any other historical example of humans killing other humans, the mechanism is this. We find a group of people that we see as an other. Once we see that group as an other, we systematically shut down our empathy towards them. And once that empathy is shut down, we do horrible things to them. Even good, happy, normal, wonderful people, normally, can switch that empathy off and kill people and then go back to their wives and farms and houses and businesses. That's been this alarming pattern in human behavior over and over again. And so I'm more frightened of us, the good normal people who aren't psychopaths, that we have this ability to toggle between psychopathy and normalcy. As opposed to a psychopath who's pretty predictable. They're a psychopath. What disturbed you the most in terms of your interactions with him? What did you find just left you feeling most troubled? Um, you would never know that he's a psychopath unless you had all these clinicians backing him up and the fact he was locked in a, in a forensic hospital, right? Um, I think that's the disturbing thing is that even knowing he was a psychopath, I got really used to it uh, being around him. 
he wasn't abnormal. Like, he didn't come off as abnormal. And I know that in, in the work that both you and I do in terms of interviewing people, uh, the people who are really special stand out and they kind of stay with us. And in listening to that tape with Elaine, uh, it's clear that she's one of those people for you. Is that right? So here's a woman who, you know, is um, in late middle age. She's had substance abuse issues. She's been batted around and abused by child welfare um, she's been dismissed as an Aboriginal person and an Aboriginal woman as not particularly relevant. She is quiet uh, and unassuming and has been beaten up her entire life. And she, she was able to overcome her fear in order to face the guy who did the most horrible stuff in the world to her and forgive him and empower herself by doing that. So she's this model of resilience and generosity in terms of sharing her story with me. I, I just find her remarkable. For Elaine, her visit with the killer was not only a chance to diminish the hold he had over her, it also gave her the chance to reflect on what surviving those encounters meant for her and her family. And I'd like to leave her with a final word. So just think, my grandchildren wouldn't be here, my grandson wouldn't be here, my daughters wouldn't be here. They're going to do good things with their lives, my two young girls. That's like denying the world two really fabulous people, my grandson too. I've, I've just resolved a lot of matters and a lot of issues. He's not a factor in my life anymore. And the fact that he's never going to get out makes me feel so much better. Next time on Betrayed. The notorious case of a man who put his truck up for sale on the internet and was never seen alive again. At approximately 9.20 p.m., Mr. Bosma went for a test drive with two young males in this pickup truck. Mr. Bosma had told his spouse that the males stated that they were from Toronto. Mr. Bosma has not been seen or heard from since this time. It was just a truck. You don't need him, but I do. And our daughter needs her daddy back. Author and private investigator Anne Brocklehurst brings us the story of the 2013 murder of 31-year-old Tim Bosma in her book, Dark Ambition, The Shocking Crime of Della Millard and Mark Smitch. In my opinion, the evidence at the Bosma trial did indeed prove that. This was some kind of weird, sick, twisted game for them. That's next time on Betrayed. For more on the books featured in this series, including Mad Blood Stirring, and to sign up for our newsletter, visit our website at betrayedpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Betrayed Podcast.
Mad Blood Stirring by Damon Fairless can also be enjoyed as an audiobook. Find it wherever you get your audiobooks. Betrayed is a production of Penguin Random House Canada. It's written and produced by me, Tina Pitaway, with story editing and sound design by Paolo Pietropalo. Editorial oversight by Bhavna Chohan, Melanie Titino, and Rachel Brown. Special thanks to Kristen Cochran, Robert Wheaton, Beth Lockley, Shannon Poos, Abdi Omer, Christina Chin, and Laura Chapnick. <laughs>